we're going to continue on our, our series on uh, the Sermon of Jesus, uh, not the Sermon on the Mount, because in the Gospel of Luke, uh, that sermon happens on a grassy field, uh, but I will probably accidentally say Sermon on the Mount a couple times today. Uh, and today, we're at the middle section, which is about uh, Jesus saying, uh, providing this really great challenge. That's uh, a message that's so good for our times. You know, two days before an election, uh, man, in Texas, they had a lot of ads for elections, and I thought they all agreed over there. Anyway, uh, and if ever there was a challenge for our times and for our city and for us, it's this, this middle part of the sermon where Jesus says, don't judge and don't condemn. Uh, And I'm going to read it for us. It's in uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 37 to 42. It says this, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down and shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is God's word. I know I uh, talk a lot about books uh, and I slightly apologize uh, but I've, I've actually resisted talking about this book a lot. It's my favorite novel of all time. It's East of Eden by uh, John Steinbeck, a Californian. There you go, local-ish. Uh, in the first third of this book, there's this one character that's kind of dominant, that's like larger than life, that hangs over all of it, and it's Cyrus uh, Trask. Uh, He's a widower, father of two boys. Uh, He was wounded, Civil War veteran. He had a peg leg. Uh, He had this like big uh, storytelling gene within him, but he was like a complete like scoundrel. I try to find a more like modern word for that, but really he was just like a scoundrel. Uh, He wasn't evil. There's another evil character that's like, ugh, in the book. He's just kind of terrible, Uh, He pits his sons against each other. Sometimes he elevates one and puts the other down, and then he switches it on them, and then, like, it's kind of this whole Cain and Abel kind of story. Uh, He withholds affection from one son in some situations, but then he gives it to the other. Uh, He forces one into the military because he thinks it'll really toughen him up, even though the other one should probably go into the military, and he forces that one to stay home and work his land. Uh, But above all of it, this guy, Cyrus Trask, was a complete liar. Like, all of these stories were just lies. Uh, He told stories as if he was, you know, there commanding the armies of the Union to win the Civil War. Uh, He was the central figure in the whole thing. Like, he was the center of it all, but really, he was all just kind of a lie, Uh, But he was so imposing and so persuasive with all of these lies, 
uh, about his military heroics that the government actually appoints him to be in charge of many things within the military. Like the, the government believes him. Uh, you know, the world really hasn't changed that much. But the fact is that Cyrus was actually wounded on the very first hour of his very first battle. Uh, that's when he lost his leg, and that was the end of his entire uh, war. Uh, he finally dies, uh, and you're thinking, is this guy going to be in this book forever? Uh, he finally dies, uh, and he leaves a fortune of more than $100,000 to his two sons, which they quickly realized was likely stolen from a fund to help wounded veterans and families, but they never, you know, they never got that money. Cyrus was just like keeping it for himself. He was just a terrible person. Maybe you're like, that is evil. But I mean, there was this other character. That was like, anyway, just kind of a terrible, obnoxious, lying person. Uh, one of the reasons I love that book so much is because all the characters uh, are just so real and visible in our lives, too. Because you will encounter and you have encountered many people who harm you, who harm others. Uh, there's going to be people in your life who do everything the wrong way. Uh, or do it the opposite way that you would do it. They steal, they lie, they're foolish, uh, they're arrogant and ignorant, which is by far the worst combination. Uh, there's going to be those people who aren't dealing with their own personal issues and their impact is spilling over into your life and your work and your family and your finances, your safety, your peace of mind. Like there's people like that in your life now probably. Uh, and if they're not now, like, what a season for you, you know? Maybe they just moved out or something. I'm just kidding. What are we supposed to do with those people? What are we supposed to do with the angst and the anger and the stress and the overall bad attitudes that you just sort of absorb when you're around the, you know, ethically weak or the morally corrupt or just that empty, egotistical woman or man in your life that's slowly but steadily ruining your life, ruining the world, ruining society. Like, what are you supposed to do with those people? Uh, there's a couple options. Uh, one is we could just ignore it and relax. You know, just uh, no worries, my friend. Like, you're messing up everything, but no problems. No worries. Uh, that's no thing. You know, we just kind of forget about it. We can try to be chill, uh, shut it down, pretend like nothing is happening. Just like put on blinders like, oh, okay, that's, that person is there and they're doing that thing, but I'm just going to ignore it and live at peace in my own little land. Uh, but did you know that the, the force of a volcano and the energy of a volcano is greatest right before it erupts? Like, not when it's, like, spilling stuff all into there. The force and the energy and the power of it is highest before it erupts uh, because the pressure and the heat and the compounding presence of all these raw materials of magma and rock, they're building up, and the mountain itself is resisting over and over again this eruption. Like, the mountain's like, I don't want to blow up, right? Like, that's what's happening. And it's powerful, and it's coming down over and over again, and that's the most energy that the mountain will ever exert is keeping the eruption in. And I say all of that for just this observation that ignore and, react and relax actually creates more burden, more weight, more pressure on you than you could likely handle. 
After your meeting at work, you go home, and you're just trying to relax, but really you're boiling. Uh, You get off your Zoom call, and you're wreathing in anger, even though you're just chill with them, right? You say things like, I can't believe it, you know? You have some sort of interaction with your extended family over Thanksgiving or Christmas or even just making the plans, and you'll say things like, it's always the same with them, but I'm just going to chill and relax, right? The problem is you can't just ignore all of these things. Something must be done with all of that wrong, and usually you're just powering it, you know, building it down within you. So that's option one, and obviously it's not good because, you know, what would be the point of the rest of the sermon? <laughs> the next thing you can do is you could, uh, you could just critique others, analyze them, judge their motives, figure out, oh, it's probably this piece of their childhood story, and now that I know that, I can analyze them more quick- quickly. Or you can do cynicism around them and just be like, they're going to never change, and I'm going to let them know it. Uh, you can withhold your engagement. You know, you can shun them. Uh, sometimes shun them without telling anybody. That's always nice. Uh, then they never have any kind of understanding. Uh, that will really show them I've ignored them. I'm not responding to none of their text messages, you know? Uh, this is really the religious way. You know, try to make them pay. Rub their noses in it. If maybe we let them know how wrong they are over and over again, somehow they're going to see their own demise and see how they're acting and just somehow change course, right? If we point it out exactly how wrong they are, maybe they're going to get the idea and eventually through that kind of communal discipline of judgment, they're going to change into the type of person that you want them to be. Uh, it's like Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. You know, the, the lady has to have the, the A on her, and she walks around, and everyone's like, okay, we're, if we just treat her bad enough, and if we just remind her enough of all the things that she's done wrong, she's going to become the kind of person we always wanted her to be, right? Or maybe, probably, I know Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter was probably a long time ago for many of you guys. Eighth grade was, is in the distant past. But... Uh, even for you guys, eighth grade, distant pass. You don't remember it. Do you have to read it still? No. Yeah. Too religious. Anyway, you might know of Angela from The Office, who just like, you know, she shops uh, at the American Girl doll store, and that's where she gets her clothes that are completely appropriate, and she does everything correctly, and she lets everybody else know that they're quite not good enough. You know, they're, they're not behaving well enough. They don't have the right ideals, the right virtues, and she just lets them know it over and over again, right? The problem with this sort of religious judgment, and Angela in the office gets it as well, is that you're not just building a prison and, an, and a system of judgment for them. You're also building a system of judgment for yourself too. While you're building their prison, you're building your own prison too, Because then you know, like, I've been harsh with everyone. I better also live up to that standard because if I fail, just imagine how much, you know, blowback and judgment I'm going to receive from them. Because you have to imagine, you know, you know, what is that physics thing, equal or greater force back that you give, something like that. (laughs) All you scientists know what I'm talking about. I can come to your work anytime and help you guys solve your problems. (laughs) But then there's this thing that Jesus says, which is this whole other way. And it's pretty straightforward. 
It's a list of commands. There's two restrictive commands, like don't do these things. And then there's two proactive things. Definitely do these. And they kind of form the ethic of the follower of Jesus in this world uh, and how we deal with these challenging, you know, difficult, morally laxed people. First thing Jesus says is do not judge. Don't judge. What he's talking about here is don't look for faults. Don't go out there into the world and analyze people and say, let me see if where they land on my own scale. You can imagine in the Olympics, uh, the judge of a diving competition or in gymnastics, uh, each contestant starts with a 10, right? And then what the judge is doing is they're looking at every tiny move and, and action that the athlete does, and they're like, oh, there's a point. I'm gonna, I have to subtract a point. Did you see that where they were kind of off a little bit and their hair kind of did that thing and the, and the splash was a little too big? There's a whole point, like uncalled for, unacceptable. And so Jesus says, don't live your life where you're out there in the world critiquing everyone, pulling them down little by little. You can't do that. Don't do it. Don't judge. He also says, do not condemn which is different. The judgment part is, you know, hey, that's wrong. Then condemnation is, here's the punishment. Uh, to essentially sentence them to the land of rejection, to put them outside the realm of real human life. Like, yeah, you're not behaving well enough. Now I get to censor you and disregard you entirely. This condemnation is to say that they are no longer, or maybe they've never been, the image of God at all. Uh, they're not, no longer this thing, this force of creative work that God did to display himself and his glory into the world. No, this is not a person at all anymore. They're just an object that can be thrown away, neglected, used, whatever we do. They're not human anymore. They're just a thing, and you know what? They kind of deserve it. So Jesus says... Don't judge and don't condemn. Those are the don'ts. Whatever you do, Jesus says, don't live out of that judgmental perspective, that attitude of condemnation. Sounds, sounds fair enough. Sounds a lot like kind of just ignore it though. Like, okay, that we already talked about that's not enough. So then Jesus says, here's two things you do instead of those things. The first is forgiveness. Forgiveness is the act of removing the burden of payback. That's what forgiveness is. That these people have wronged you and they've done all of these things to you. And forgiveness is you don't have to, you're removing the burden of debt and guilt back to you. Uh, it's a lifting of the guilt. The word forgiveness in the New Testament literally means the removal of obligation, the removal of guilt. And the concept is that each of us is weighed down with this heavy burden of guilt. And all of these people, when they sin against us, when they lie, when they destroy our lives, they're just heaping onto themselves more and more burdens. And so Jesus is saying, don't judge, don't condemn. Instead, go to them and remove the guilt off of their shoulders. He also says, give generously. Literally, the word grace. Extend grace. Give them what they do not deserve. You know, in a few months, it'll be Christmas time. Uh, and at Christmas with kids, I just want to let you know, it's not fun to say, hey, kids, like each day that you behave well, and each way you do something really, really awesome, I'm going to put another dollar into the pot 
to buy you a Christmas gift. If you behave, the more you behave, the bigger your Christmas gift gets. You know why that's a pretty lame thing to do? I mean, it's kind of what we do with Santa Claus, but we don't do that in our family. Maybe you guys do, and that's okay. The problem with all of that is on Christmas morning, when you open up the presents, you're not opening up a gift, you're opening up payment for what you've already done and what you deserve, right? Grace, what he's saying here is you actually give someone what they have not worked for, what they have not built up for themselves, what they do not deserve. And trust me, on Christmas, you'll give these gifts to each other and they won't deserve it. Like, they don't deserve the, like, gold watch that you're giving each other. That's what makes it a gift. So what this means is that you would give your presence, your friendship, your space, uh, your hospitality, your personality. You'd be giving all of this stuff, even prayers for their good, you would give to them. Unmerited. They don't deserve it, but you're going to give it to them anyway. This is not how... Society works. But Jesus is saying, refuse that attitude of judgment and condemnation. Resist. Instead, forgive and be generous with one another. And and Jesus is saying, that's how my kingdom is going to work. Uh, Daryl Bach, uh, a scholar on everything that Luke wrote in the Bible, he says this. He says, the idea of a judging mentality and censorious perspective towards others that holds them down in guilt and never seeks to encourage them toward God. What is commanded is an attitude that is hesitant to condemn and quick to forgive. What is prohibited is an arrogance that reacts with hostility to the worldly and the morally lax, viewing such people as beyond God's reach. Jesus is saying... I want you to stand and resist the winds pounding against you and sail against it into a whole new world that is based not on judgment and condemnation, but on forgiveness and grace. That is pretty great. And it's pretty challenging. Like, why should we take on such a hard task? Like, that's, it might be easier just to silently condemn and judge other people. I mean, it's definitely easier. The might you can remove. Definitely easier. Why would we take on such a hard task? No, he talks about the, the measuring. He talks about in the marketplace, and this is still the marketplaces all over the world, where, where people have measured out perfect little blocks or containers or cups, like that's where the measuring cups come from. And like, that's a cup, and everybody agrees. The container they built is one cup. And then you fill it with grain or, or uh, seeds or whatever, dried fruits, and you pack it up to the rim. And the idea is the other person's packing up their thing too, and then you exchange it, right? Jesus is talking about this timely truth that you get what you pay for, that what you get, give out, you receive. Uh, this timeless truth is true for Airbnbs. You know, you get what you pay for, right? It's true with discount airline flights. It was only $50, you get exactly what you paid for, right? It's true for steaks, it's true for minivans, it's really everything in this world. There's no such thing as a good deal, just cheaper prices on cheaper goods, right? That's the truth. So Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is not this kind of karma life cycle. You know, maybe you might think that. That sounds a lot like karma. You get, 
back from the universe what you put into the universe. He's saying it's not a karma life cycle. He's saying that you reap what you sow. It's what Paul says in Galatians 6, chapter 7. If you're, uh, you're going to judge, you'll be judged. If you condemn, you will be condemned. And there's deep, profound consequences within you and in the relationships around you. If you're going to go out there and condemn other people to trash and unworthy and insignificant and not good enough, here's a little insight Jesus is giving you. You will live under that exact same condemnation because you will hear within yourself your own voice or the voice of others that say, you're also not good enough and you also don't measure up. The less you forgive, the less you think that you deserve to be forgiven. The more you condemn, the more you will feel condemned. Then you're going to be trying to do some sort of gymnastics to get out of it and be like, well, I'm not as terrible as that person. But you feel deep within yourself these lies and these proclamations over you, which is, yeah, you're not cutting it either. It reminds me of uh, in World War II, uh, the, the, in the darkness, where the Nazis would make prisoners, uh, either in the Holocaust or prisoners of war, dig holes. And the people would think, oh, I'm just digging a hole as, you know, manual labor. But what they were digging each day was their own graves that they would be buried in. And this is what Jesus is saying. The life of the judge, the life of the condemnation person, is building your own grave that you will be buried in. And so Jesus says the only way to live a life of freedom and joy and blessedness and the kingdom of God is to not judge or condemn, but instead forgive and give generously. Miroslav Volf says, whatever the reason, when forgiveness happens, it is always a miracle of grace because the obstacles for that are so immense. And so I think Jesus then tells this final parable that's pretty famous and it's often quoted all the time. And I think the power of it is just as regularly missed. Uh, it's this parable of there's two men. Uh, one has a speck in his eye and the other one has like a plank, like a, like a wooden stake lodged into his eye. And one of them is telling the, the one with the big plank is like, hey, you've got a little bit of dust in your eye. You know, you should, you should take care of that little speck of dust in your eye. And, and Jesus says, what a hypocrite. Like, don't be that person. Don't be that guy, right? Uh, our typical understanding of this parable is, hey, don't tell other people what to do, right? Uh, hey, don't throw stones if you live in a glass house, right? Uh, don't you see you've got a problem yourself? You should just be quiet, sit down. Like, that's usually when we tell this parable in culture, in life, all the time. Hey, you've got a big stake in your own eye. Let's all just be quiet. Let's all just pretend nothing is going on around here, right? And sometimes we read this as an encouragement. You know, we think we're the person with the speck, and the other person's the person with the plank, you know? It's like, yeah, they need to sit down and be quiet. They've got a big thing in their eye, right? But clearly, Jesus intends for us to hear this parable and think, I'm the one with the big wooden stake in my eye. Like, that's how it's written, and that's what he intended. And so let me ask you this. 
What would you do if you found out, you know, through the agonizing pain, that you had a massive piece of wood lodged into your eyeball? What would you do, Max? What would you guys do? How did it get in there? How did it get in there? You would begin to ask important questions like, how did this happen to me? That's a really good question. What else would you ask? What else would you do? You try to get it out. Maybe go to a doctor? Go to a doctor? <laughs> Sounds about right. See, this, isn't a, this a parable is not about sit down, be quiet. This parable is an appeal to pursue healing. It's a cry for us to go to the hospital, to stop pretending that you've only received some sort of flesh wound and be real that you are in grave danger, that you should remove the plank from your eye. And and this parable, Jesus is pleading, please get it removed. Go, get it fixed. Go to the carpenter. Have, you know, the wood experts. Get it out of your eye. Afterwards, go to therapy to recover your sight. Honestly, this kind of injury, I mean, just how did it get in there? Like, those are existential questions about, like, how did this plank get lodged in there? But it would honestly be the kind of injury that would take over your life for a while. The pain of it, the recovery process, the scar, Uh, the working through the trauma that was caused by what kind of injury this produced. It would be this constant, proactive thing that you would have to process to come to full healing. I mean, I've never had that kind of injury, but during COVID, I did cut off a big chunk of this finger. I still can't feel it, the tip of this finger, which is great because we don't have a a doorknob on our car, so I get a put my finger into this rusty metal and and open the car that way. So it works out great now. But at the time, there was blood gushing everywhere you could see inside. I thought about putting a picture, and then I thought, that's not okay. So I didn't put the picture out. But imagine if I was there. I was lying on our deck, and as Mirella was trying to care for me, and if I said, no, no, stop doing this, I saw my neighbor David, he stubbed his toe. I want to go over there and help him out because he stubbed his toe while blood is, is gushing, right? You know, I, I would have to stop, right? And I'd have to go to the hospital. This parable is lodged into this teaching by Jesus as an intervention for you. Not to just get us to be quiet or to ignore the problems in the world, but to get us to stop being so religious and instead say, I am the sick in need of a doctor. Notice these words. First, the parable, the person in the parable says, he says that you fail to see the plank. You're blind. You fail to see. You don't know what's actually happening. Then secondly, it says you fail to see clearly in others. You fail to see who you are. You fail to see what God is actually doing because you are dealing with this pain and you're refusing to get it dealt with. In a world of judgment and condemnation, of stones ready to be thrown, there is a great power, and it's a quiet power, but it's still power in dropping the stone and saying, I am not well. I'm going to go and find the healer. And here we've arrived at the kingdom life. It's for those who say, 
I am not well. I need to be cared for. How can we not operate in judgment and condemnation? How can we extend forgiveness and grace by having an operation done on our souls? By checking ourselves into the doctor's office and saying, I've got wounds, I've got scars, I've got pains lodged deep within my soul. I need to have them cared for. Oh, and it's hard work, right? Asking questions, where did this anger in my life come from? Where did this cynicism, why did I start using it to cope? Where's all this reactionary sarcasm coming from and what's inside that's covering it up? We'd have to respond to questions like, where does it hurt? Why do I keep doing the same easy fixes over and over again when I know they just destroy me a little bit more? Have to answer questions like, what are the wounds And why do I live this way in response to them? What's going on in my core? And then you're going to have to answer this question, who is going to remove the plank lodged in my eye? Who can heal? Who can empower me or even give me the strength? And now we kind of understand, hopefully you understand, you're a difficult person. You're a Cyrus Trask. That's you. It's a story about you. We're the morally laxed, the ethically flexible, the sinful. Sure, we've received the blunt force of sin done to us. And sure, we've extended that force elsewhere. Who can remove the sting of all of this? The sweet words, right? Jesus, the one who forgives and removes sin. That's what his name means. Jesus, the Lord saves sinners. The wounds, his wounds, he puts himself, his body, on the big wooden plank. Has his arms pierced, his feet pierced. As Isaiah says, by his wounds, we are healed. You've got wounds. His wounds are for your wounds. By him taking on the judgment and the weight and the wrath of God, of being the one that gets to be, yeah, you know what, God, you can count me down, you can judge me so that they will not be judged. Jesus takes on all the condemnation for you, all the disregard, all the punishment that's due you, all the separation from God, Jesus takes it for you. As Isaiah 59, 2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, but your sins have been hidden, his face from you so that he does not hear. Jesus took on your sin, your separation, your condemnation. Or as it says in Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And I know righteousness of God, that's like a multiple syllable word. To be made whole and healed and right. He became sin so that we might be made healed and whole and right. 
He forgives. He's the one who's forgiving constantly. That Jesus came that he might forgive sinners over and over again. He kept telling people that had all of these ailments and wounds, he would say, your sins are forgiven. The guilt is removed from you. And the thing that Jesus says over your life constantly is the guilt is already removed because I've dealt with the judgment and the condemnation. The generous portions, the grace, all of it overwhelmingly for you. So what does all of that do for you? It's like having a kind friend come up to you and say, brother, I know you're hurting. Let me heal you. These are the words of Jesus. This is what he's, what he's done with his whole life. That's the full measure of his work in this world. And it's what's offered to you in Christ, in Jesus. The blessed life, the kingdom life, is one where there is no judgment and condemnation. What you receive over and over again is forgiveness and grace. And I know this might sound bad or scary, uh, but I long for us to be a needy people like us in Soma, Culver City. Like I know we have advanced degrees, really smart. We have access to financial resource and all of these things. But I long for us to be a needy people. Not just wounded, but like openly wounded. Clinging to the healing and the saving power of Jesus and nothing else. Celebrating his forgiveness, his mercy bestowed on us instead of condemning the world around us. And what a different attitude that is, especially if you think about Angela, the one Christian in the office. See, we think that the world somehow has to show, or that the church has to show the world perfection. Like, God's really done it for me. See how perfect I am? See how good I am? You should get on this too. We think that the church needs to avoid, you know, like, looking so weak. And so a, a church relying on healing and needing so much from God might sound a little off to you. But here's the grand irony of the whole thing. It's so unbelievably attractive to a world to see us fighting against that wind, saying, no, no, I'm, I'm in need of a savior, of a healer, of a forgiver. And so don't judge or condemn Receive the gift of God's forgiveness and grace. And when you do, you'll be like King David who said in the Psalms, search me, O God, and know me. Remove anything that's unclean within me. That'll be your biggest desire to go before God and say, search me, know me, remove any plank, any speck of dust, anything. Or in the language of this parable, Jesus examined my soul and take out any plank, any wound, any pain that hinders, that I might see clearly. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the, the cross of forgiveness. I thank you for the empty tomb that gives us uh, unending, boundless grace. Um, God, I pray for us to be a church even as we come and take communion that is in need of a healer, that is in need of your work within us, um, that we would uh, have you search our hearts and our souls and that you would make us well, um, that we would be people that would, uh, yeah, 
overcome the fear and embrace uh, your kind hands to make us well and to remove the, the fear of condemnation, to remove the heart that judges and feels judged and instead just bathe in your grace. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.